Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. Now, on this episode, I am joined by the fantastic Dr. Jim Harter. Now, everyone knows I'm a big fan of Gallup and reference them all the time. So I'm so happy that Jim is here with us today. Now, he is the chief workplace scientist at, as I said, the world-renowned analytics and advisory company Gallup. He is co-author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Wellbeing at Work, and the number one Wall Street Journal and Washington bestseller, It's the Manager. Here it is. It's my Bible, Jim. I use it all the time. In his new book, Culture Shock, Jim explores how organizations adapting to this culture shock will determine whether they thrive or even survive and whether US and global productivity will go up or down. Now, he received his doctorate in psychology and cultural studies in quantitative and qualitative methods from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Nearly 40 years of experience in the field of human behaviors, Jim has a great passion for studying what happens inside organizations. And Jim, you're coming to us today from the US. Where in the US are you today? I'm in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. You can see behind me the Missouri River and Iowa Look on the other this. side. Well, Jim, it's so lovely to have you. Welcome to Better at Work from Nebraska. Thanks for having me on your show, Kyle. Great to meet you. So delighted to have you on. Where did it all start for you, Jim? Like, How did you become so interested in human behavior? What was it about your childhood or where did this come from? It did kind of start pretty early on for me. I had a grandpa who's a sheriff. He used to deal with... Uh, criminals. I mean, it was a small town, so it wasn't a lot of criminals. He dealt with them enough that he got to know them pretty well. And he said, I've always thought that there's something that led up to this in their past. Got me thinking a little bit more about that. But then in um, school, I got some good feedback that I could write. And I knew that I was good with numbers, but I didn't know there was a career that combined all those things together. And I kind of stumbled upon that with uh, Gallup, actually through an internship, which I really encourage people uh, schools and businesses to combine their forces and, and create internships because there's no better way for an individual to get to know whether they're really a fit for that job and for the company to get game film on the individual, uh, live action on how they collaborate, how they do the work, whether it's the right fit for the company. Um, and it, wor- it worked for me. And I know it's worked for a lot of other people. It's almost like a try before you buy before, for all sides, right? Now, obviously, you've been studying human behaviors in the workplace for 37 years. So it's clear to say you are absolutely an expert in the field. What made you decide to focus on that employee engagement space? Like what drew you to that particular subject? Well, I had a chance to work for 17 years with Don Clifton, who um, was chairman of Gallup for quite some time. And I met him early on in my career. He asked me if I wanted to do research with him after that internship. And I figured I better try that. He had been studying uh, strengths uh, from very early ages after he got out of the out of the war. Um, he thought he had to do something really productive for society. And he noticed there's a big 
a big gap in uh, psychological literature. Most of it focused on what's wrong with people, and he wanted to really spend the rest of his life studying what's right with people. And part of you know studying what's right with people are their innate kind of tendencies or strengths, but also the kind of culture that you build inside an organization. And so we would design surveys and torture people with 200 question surveys and ask them everything we th- could think of. After a while, we started learning there's some commonality in what we're hearing across different industries, different countries, all over the world. We just we heard a lot of similarity in, in what makes high, highly productive teams successful and the kind of cultures that are built. We met uh, Frank Schmidt, uh, who was one of the pioneers in meta-analysis, and he taught us some methods that we used to test whether these truly were generalizable concepts uh, in organizations, and, and they had to be actionable too. But what got me excited about it is it's changeable. We learned pretty early on that we could put some methods in place to create change, culture change in organizations. There's nothing better for a psychologist or any kind of scientist than to see their work uh, result in some change and uh, get feedback on that. And so that's kept me pretty excited throughout my career, kind of combining those forces of let's get to know what's right with people from an innate strengths perspective, and then let's build a culture where they can thrive and produce high results for the organization and have better lives for themselves. How important is engagement to an organization? Well, we've conducted 10 uh, iterations of meta-analysis of the relationship between engagement and performance. If it's defined in a way that's actionable and uh, I would say very high bar, meaning that you're really going after high levels of engagement, not uh, not combining like fours and fives together on a five-point scale. And that's what I'd call closer to satisfaction. But uh, but a lot of organizations are doing doing that, and that's can kind of trick them into thinking that they're falsely positive. So I'm kind of critical of that because I think I I can't really hold back anymore. I'm getting older, and I I need to I need to tell people exactly what I think works. I would have liked you around for, for some of those. <laughs> anyway, sorry, keep going. Jim. But how important is engagement? It's one of the more important variables we found, mainly because it it is consistently linked to all kinds of out profitability, productivity retention rates, which have been really important to organizations as of late and are periodically, they're always important, but periodically more important over time during, depending on the, the economy, safety, accidents on the job, patient safety incidents in healthcare organizations, absenteeism, um, the, the list kind of goes on. Customer, a really important one is the customer. It, uh, it links very strongly to how customers perceive the service they receive, which is, again, incredibly important right now because customer satisfactions tend to be on the decline. But I think it's it's mostly important because those links are clear and established, uh, not only by studies that we've done at Gallup, but studies that others have done outside of Gallup and published in academic literature. That's one side of it. The other side is that it's it's actionable, it's changeable if you define it the right way. And uh, it's it, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in engagement that, that's, that, that is not, you know, rocket science to fix, but people just, there's certain things that People have historically ignored about human behavior in organizations that they can quickly get right. And so that encourages me. I can't wait to dig a little deeper into some of that because some of your writing, et cetera, is just so on point. I looked at some of the recent data in the UK. I'm, I've actually just moved to London uh, from Australia. And in the UK, only 10% of people report feeling engaged with their work. In the US, I think the number is something around 31%. Um, this is from your, your latest study. Of course, no organization, of course, would want their employees disengaged. So how do you think we've ended up in this position? It's been low globally for some time, but it has been on, um, I'm optimistic because I see an uh, upward trend overall, even though we've seen some declines lately in the U.S. Australia and New Zealand has seen a six-point increase in engagement as of recent, but they, they still match the uh, 23%. Europe has been 
really low for some time. But there are s- some systemic parts of organizations that have to do with what we assume about people that I think have a lot to do with it. There's a uh, theory X and theory Y theorized by Douglas McGregor decades ago. And so you got to ask the question, are we more like theory X or theory, theory X is really, do we, we assume that people cannot totally be trusted and we've got to have really firm control and on people. And theory Y assumes that people can be trust, can be very innovative and, and, and can own their work and be very responsible for it. About uh, one in four people would strongly agree that their opinions count at work. So that's a, that's a, an indication that there's a lot of uh, theory X action, even though theory Y uh, needs to be endorsed nowadays for knowledge workers. It's really important uh, that, that managers, but there's also an element of accountability that's, that I'm not going to um, back away from at all because I think it's really important to management, but uh, clear expectations, uh, which often get overlooked. Only about half of people clearly know what's expected of them at work. That's been dropping in the U.S. And so, so you asked about COVID. Um, I think the conditions around COVID have created two things in terms of how we've experienced work. One is that we have learned a lot about what works best that we never would have known before. Um, we've learned we can have a new, new, newfound freedom for people in remote ready jobs, at least. And we've learned that it, um, some level of, of freedom even needs to be built into an autonomy needs to be built into onsite jobs as well. So we've known autonomy is important, but I think it really, it really hit people hard that this is something I value. And this is something that I can, I can do my work differently than I ever did before. The other side of it is though, we have become more separated and in-person time does matter. And it's causing somewhat of a uh, disconnect between workers and their employers, which then translates to customers and causes a disconnect there. And that's why customer satisfaction has been on the decline. I think that workplaces can be in in better shape than they've ever been before if we get this right, because we've learned some things um, and we know how to manage effectively, whether it's from a distance or in person. So so I'm I'm optimistic about where we can be. Uh, The trend has been positive. over the over the decades we've been measuring it, uh, it, it's a slow growing trend though. We know in organizations though it can move faster than that if we do the right thing. So it really is kind of an organization by organization phenomenon that we have to get right. You touched on some great things there. I mean, you touched on one of my favorite uh, theories from behavioral economics. You didn't mention talking about endowment effect there because I, I think that's what's happened with you know COVID. People got used to working from home, and for any of our listeners, endowment effect. Is, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, given a benefit or something they believe is a net positive, like working from home, they strongly resist losing it. And it's a case with even very small, there's an experience with coffee mugs that show that you, know, you're, you put more value on a coffee mug you already own than, than when you bought it in the first place, if someone tries to take it from you. So it's, and this is, we're not talking about a coffee mug here. We're talking about people's experience in work and life. And and it's, uh, it's not something that employers are going to, easily wrestle away, but they can provide a level of, I call it rational or smart autonomy, where you actually have a discussion about what works best and uh, work it through the teams in terms of how people work, what type, the type of work that they do, and always honor that in-person time matters. We did a study uh, even well before COVID of different forms of social time, whether it was uh, technological or email or, you know, uh, or in-person 
we found that all forms of social time matter to an extent. Uh, In-person time matters the most from a mood perspective, uh, but the total amount matters less than the fact that it actually happens. So building some predictability in our environment. So when we show up, we see our colleagues and to, to get, get people to re-recognize the things that happen in person that we might have forgot about, which it could be solving a problem, it could be something innovative, it could be fun and friendships, uh, which is important at work as well. Absolutely. In-person time matters and, and leaders need to kind of nudge people forward on that without being overly bearing on it. Yeah, I mean, there's no point in telling people to come into the office and then you go in and there's there's three people there and they're all on, you know, Zooms or Teams all day. And it's, you know, people go, why did I just, you know, come 45 minutes in here for this? You know, yeah, I've heard you say this before and I've read it from you hybrid and all of this, you, you've got to have some structure around it. You have to have some kind of a charter around how you're going to do it, essentially. Yeah. And there needs to be a discussion that leads to that. We uh, asked people how they decide where they're going to work, whether it's in the office or home. These are for remote, remote ready jobs. We gave them four choices. You uh, were told by leadership, your manager told you, or you decided on your own, or uh, you decided with your team. The one that related most highly to employee engagement was decide with your team. But only 13% of people are using that method. You are kidding think, think me. Think about that. 13%. <sighs> it's low-hanging fruit. People just automatically either go to authority or, or authority goes to them or they decide on their own. So those two continuums of I'm going to do whatever I want versus I'm going to be told what to do, neither, neither of those two uh, really work very well. But I think leadership does need to set some structure for people to your point. And we recommend from our research two to three days in person. And for some people, they will, will want more than that. Some people will have a job where it might be less. But if that's a structure where when people show up, they know their colleagues are going to be there, then uh, they can start relearning the benefits of, of in-person time. And some people have done it on their own, but we have settled into kind of a situation where people have picked their preferences. Nine out of 10 people in a remote ready jobs prefer some type of remote work or hybrid work. That's huge. I mean, that's that's a big learning that happened that I think employers should endorse, but also no, that's not the only solution. You know, it's it's also it's even more so about how you manage people. Well, it's interesting because I would say for ninety percent of my career, I could not bear remote work. Like I, I just I loved being in the office. I'm a people person. During COVID and getting to work from home, there was a little bit of I could do more deep work sometimes without people coming up to my desk asking me questions. That was useful. I, I was like, oh, wow, I'm actually getting through some of this more strategy work or whatever it is a bit faster than I do when I'm in the office. But then there's other things that I think you get done faster when you're in the office, when you're all together and you can just get a whiteboard out, get through something. I've learned a lot essentially myself through it on what works. And I suppose for everyone, some things work differently for people. And as you said, if as a team, you can work together and go, how could we do this that it, it works for all of us? That's a win-win. I want to um, switch gears slightly because, well, not slightly, I think it's still linked to the manager and the leader because I am a firm believer that the leader is so important. I've ran programs where we've developed leadership uh, development programs for hundreds of leaders. And because I feel that that's the best, quickest way to change culture. And I know you believe the same. Why do you think the role of the leader is so important or the manager? I would even argue that the role of uh, executive leader and manager now is is uh, more, the role of leader is more nuanced than ever before because of the things we've already talked about. But the role of manager 
is not only more important than ever before, but also more difficult, even more important than when we wrote that book. Um, and it's because people are, are more at a distance. There's less predictability in the environment. But managers are really the only ones in position in an organization to know each person's situation. And so much of what drives human behavior is personal and situational. I don't mean overly personal in terms of uh, trying to get people to divulge more than they want to. I'm, I'm talking more about knowing the person based on their strengths and what they do best and developing those strengths into high, high level competencies and even directing those strengths at higher well-being and knowing how to accommodate the person's situation. Let's say they've got kids at home or they've got, they've got a young family or maybe they're an empty nester or just knowing that situation, even knowing we talked about this a little bit in culture shock also, whether they're a blender or a splitter in terms of how they, they think about their ideal work life. You know, do they, do they ideally want them split so that I'm working now and then I'm away from work and I don't touch work when I'm away? Or are they more of a blender where they think about work and life being integrated throughout the day? Interestingly to me, and that was a little bit of a surprise, it's an equal split 50-50. Uh, between blenders and splitters. And if you don't know, think about trying to manage someone and not knowing that preference, how, how easily it'd be to offend them or or uh, or cause burnout or stress uh, unintentionally. So knowing the situation, my, my point, I guess, is uh, managers are in the best position to know the situation. And those are some examples of things that get overlooked. Some managers, they, they don't spend much time with their people and you go, wow, you're just really missing a trick here. I've had amazing people work for me. I've had women work for me who are managing childcare and they have to pick their kids up at 4.30. If I know that, and a lot of these women would go home, do that, make the dinner, and they're back online to finish off some things between seven and nine. And that used to work for them. They were very happy with that. They were like, I actually quite like that kids are in bed and blah, blah, blah. And I go, I actually quite like that too, because sometimes something mightn't have gotten to the right level by four o'clock. But by that time, there's a bit more and you can move it along the next phase, right? So I just think uh, that's so important to know your people, right? It's it's critical. I mean, I love Gallup's famous Q12 survey. And, and some people now listening may not, never heard of the Q12 survey, but it basically says engagement starts by meeting your employees, 12 basic individual teamwork and growth needs. Now, I, I love this. I, I absolutely love it. And for anyone that's listening, you can actually see this um, on Gallup's website for free. And the 12 questions are on there. You can access them. They're just fantastic. Would you mind telling us, Jim, just a little bit for anyone that's never heard of the Q12 survey, just a little bit about it? This is a little bit of an expansion on what we talked about earlier when we talked about importance of engagement and, and why there are 12 elements uh, that we measure through individual questions or statements that get answered by employees all over the world. We've got about uh, 59 million in our database now, I think, that have uh, completed that set of questions. But they move from more basic needs to more complex needs. And it's a, in a sort of a hierarchy. Those of you who know Abram Maslow's work, he had a hierarchy of human needs. We have a hierarchy of engagement, which is based in human needs as well at work. And so if you think about when we come to work in almost any work situation, we all need to know what's expected. We need to have the resources. We need to do our work. Those are the, those are the basic needs, and then we build on top of those with, uh, you know, how am I important as an individual? And it, that starts with doing what I do best and uh, getting recognized when I do good work. Again, these are kind of low hanging areas that that get ignored often. And when you do, it's hard to accomplish much on on the higher level ones. It also includes uh, 
what I say, recognition at work, uh, development and, and feeling cared about at work, which sound feeling cared about sounds soft, but it links to about every outcome we've ever studied. It's just a basic essential. When you're a part of a group, you want to feel cared about. You want to feel like you're important. We tried to capture those basic needs in the Q12. That's six of them. The next, the next six are a set that include belonging. So that's whether your opinions count, whether you feel connected to the mission or purpose of the company. So that's been incredibly important during the uh, pandemic and and after people continue to feel connected to their company and what it's about and see the importance of their work. Then there's a couple around coworkers, whether people uh, feel their coworkers are committed to quality work and then whether they actually have a best friend at work. So whether they feel strongly socially connected to at least one person at work. And then the highest level is really uh, um, around uh, learning and growth and, and whether people have regular progress discussions and opportunities to learn and grow at work. So they, they fit into that. The reason it's in a hierarchy is you can, if you go right to the higher level needs, let's say people might try to work on one of our more controversial areas. I have a best friend at work, but they don't take care of the basics. They could be building a team of dysfunctional individuals who might leave together or might, uh, you know, those friendships could turn dysfunctional if people don't know what's expected or they don't feel cared about um, by, by their supervisor. They're in an order for a purpose, but they're really the, the functional way that we go about measuring employee engagement in a way that a manager can act on it and employees can act on it themselves. These 12 questions are great. You know, I over the years, I've done a bit of a gap analysis between myself, my one-on-ones with some of my direct reports and these and gone, okay, which ones haven't I touched on, etc. So it's a, they're just fantastic. It really looks to me or strikes me that the one-to-one that a leader or a manager has with their team members is so important, right? Oh, yeah, it's very important. It might seem like from an executive leadership position uh, from a distance that you can't meet the needs of every single person in your organization because everybody's different and that just is too messy. But if it is through your managers, if your culture change happens through your managers, it's very achievable because they are in position. They can be upskilled or reskilled. And we found that very effective. They can be reskilled in a way that where they know the strengths of each person they manage, they they know how to engage them through the Q12, and and it's all linked to performance management. So these three things aren't like separate pieces. A manager can actually simplify their job by being reskilled to do those things and have better one-on-one conversations with uh, with the people they manage directly. I know you've talked about feedback as well. Actually, I mean, some people run away from feedback. You know, I've gone to so many teams where you know the people have never been given feedback, like no feedback at all. They are doing things that actually are hurting themselves from progressing. And I think you have to be, as a leader, confident to say, hey, listen, Claire or Louise or Peter, there are a few things here. I think if you tweaked, you could maybe uh, get over the block of you getting to the next level, etc. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Any insights around feedback from your studies? I've commented a few times that feedback has been a people repellent for uh, centuries. <laughs> but uh, when you add the word meaningful to feedback, it, it suddenly attracts people. We had to, as our team, we had to kind of break down what that means to have meaningful feedback, you know, to have it be meaningful to the individual. There were some patterns that, that we saw in the data that differentiated that from other types of feedback. By the way, if you get it being extremely meaningful, 23% global engagement is is 80%. So it shows you how achievable just through one activity this is. And what what meaningful feedback looks like is one, recognition is included. But to get recognition right, you've got to 
know what they're doing. You know, you got to know what people are working on. You got to be involved in their goals. There's a, there, there's a lot that goes into it. You could even ask them how they like to be recognized. Only 10% of people are asked how they like to be recognized. That's low hanging fruit. Again, uh, just an area where that everybody could easily improve, but very few people do. They also uh, discuss collaboration, you know, how you collaborate best with your team in those meaningful feedback sessions. They discuss goals and priorities. They had a lot of focus on the strengths of the individual. We knew before the pandemic that the younger generation was asking for uh, organizations that focus on their strengths. Didn't mean they didn't want the critique, like you mentioned, Kyle, about suggesting improvements. People want that. They want feedback. They want it more instantaneously now, but they want it to be based in what they do best and to develop new competencies based on what they do, do best. So it doesn't mean you're just isolated in one area. It means you actually know innate, what your innate tendencies are, you know, you might be a person with high focus, or you might be a person um, who has, we call it high woo, where they just uh, get to know new people very quickly, and other people shy away from that a little bit. Uh, we have to know these these traits about people, and we measure it through Clifton Strengths. It's a tool that uh, was developed initially by Don Clifton, my mentor, for 17 years. Been, it's been completed now by 30 million people around the world, and uh, it's a tool if used right, um, and if, if if used and where feedback is based in those innate tendencies can be very functional and productive. Yeah, I've, I've seen it um, work really well. I've seen even uh, from my perspective, some people that were disengaged to actually give them feedback. Even as you say, I'm going to steal your low hanging fruit. You're the, you're the low hanging fruit uh, master, I think, uh, Jim. Uh, but I, I think that that is low hanging fruit to, you know, with someone that's disengaged, have they been given feedback? Ask yourself that question. Do they know whether they're good at their job or there could be things they could improve on? Feedback on, do you like your job, right? You know, like or having a conversation, right? Sometimes people have blind spots to what they're really good at. I have sat down with some people and gone, you know, I think, Deirdre, you are amazing at X. And they're like, what? No one's ever told me that before. And it suddenly gives That's them, big. you know, it's really big, right? And yeah, it, it's, it's amazing what it does for someone. People assume, you know, that what they're doing in many cases assume that what they've been doing in the past that everybody can do, that's easy. Yeah. That's because it's a strength. Absolutely. And they, until they hear that from somebody else, it doesn't really resonate that this is something that I'm, I'm, you know, more special than other people at and that I can, I can leverage that to get even better. The other thing uh, that you kind of alluded to there, Kyle, that I, that I think is really important is just the art of listening. If managers know how to ask some questions and just listen, it changes everything. They get a different perspective on how you can serve customers better. They get a different perspective on how work can be done from the people that are directly related to it. And as I mentioned earlier, there just isn't much listening through that opinions count statistic uh, going on. But again, it's not that it's not like it's uh, something that is impossible to solve for. It's we can teach managers give them some questions to ask, some guides. And uh, there's, a, you know, most managers can be taught and some light bulbs start going off. And now, Jim, we're getting towards the end of our interview. And it's just been so great to chat to you. I've got a few final quick questions. What do you think about mentoring? We're hearing a few different rumblings about mentoring in recent times. I don't know whether you've got any data on it, but essentially what I'm hearing is mentoring is very important to a lot of organizations, particularly law firms, etc. mentoring the next level up. But what we're hearing is that the older lawyers are finding the younger ones are not interested in what they've got to say. And the younger ones are like, I don't really want to, you know, I don't really think they've got much to offer. But I just wondered very quickly, what, what are your thoughts on mentoring? Do you see value in it? Absolutely, because development is so important. 
and development usually happens in response to another person. And if someone has more experience than you and has achieved successes in their career, they, um, I think the young people should be open to the fact they might learn something from someone older than them. Maybe that's because I'm older now. But I, I mentioned, I've mentioned some mentoring relationships I've had in the past that have, have changed my entire career. I could list a handful of them that have completely changed how I think about my career. But I think it's at risk right now, Kyle, because because of the the hybrid, hybrid work, work yes. and the, the more remote work, yes. it doesn't happen as easily as it did in the past. And we were we're even seeing that in the data where younger people are, are reporting less development than they did in yeah. the past, where it's always been a young person advantage to develop in organizations, and now it's not. It's more closer to equal. So I, that's, that's a risk, but it, it also means we need to kind of show up together. And it's why uh, we shouldn't just tell young people to show up at, at certain times. We need to have um, some of the, the veterans there with them. And I'm going to use your low hanging fruit here. I think there's low hanging fruit in this space, because I think if you just need some processes and systems in place to do it well, right, tell the mentee, the younger one, hey, you set up the meeting and come prepared with three questions. Don't have it all on the mentor. I think there are very low hanging fruit there. I worked on something around this in one organization. We called it mentormatch.com. And we were like, okay, how can we match some people together and keep it basic and then have an email go out to the mentee and the mentor, standard template with going, hey, you've been assigned someone. You're the mentee. Your role is X and Y. And you need to set up the meeting. You need to follow up. And the mentor, you know, your role is to guide, help, don't miss it. Don't keep texting or emailing saying I'm too busy. There's just some basics, uh, fundamentals that I think are low hanging fruit in that particular space. I would agree. And even having, we found having one meaningful conversation a week, you know, just yes. one a week could be 15 to 30 minutes, but just being in touch with the flow of the work every week, I think is, is really important. And we found something that people just aren't doing. It needs to be a habit. If we develop the right habits in organizations, then I think uh, the mentor thing will take care of itself. I agree. Now we're on to our final questions that we ask all of our guests, Jim. So get ready. Let's go with uh, the first one, which is we're all about being better at work. Uh, what do you think, Jim? And you're the expert, 37 years. What's the smallest possible change our listeners could do to have an impact and a better day at work tomorrow, do you think? This answer may not sound very surprising for me, but, I, but I'm going to tell you because I know that it's true. Get to know your strengths and get some feedback on them. You can't just stop at knowing your strengths because it'll just fade away. And you got to have feedback from other people on how, how they see you using those strengths. And I would do that continuously. You know, build a culture inside your organization where that happens more You know, regularly, where people are giving each other feedback on those. When I just say strengths, I'm talking about the natural predispositions that we have that we've talked about earlier. I love that. I love that. And we have heard that from a few other guests as well. Said, you know, it's really important to know your strengths and feedback. Find your loving critics, someone said to us on one episode, uh, because, you know, a loving critic's going to give you your strengths and also maybe some of those things you could work on uh, to improve even further. Uh, Jim, would you mind sharing with our listeners something you learned or experienced at work that unexpectedly made your whole life better? Well, I learned along the way that, um, and it, it took some learning on my own because I'd like to take on a lot of things myself uh, to not try to do everything myself. And it feeds off of that strengths concept. But it, I think if your career goes in the right direction and you stay with the same company for a long time, you can uh, continuously do more of what you do best. And uh, you you can, it's not easy to do this, but give up some of the things you were doing to other team members that are actually better at them than you are. And and, and you, you learn along the way that that does make your life better because you're, you're, you're more in flow on a regular basis. 
I had one of my colleagues before we, we hired her told me in the interview that I want to be between you and the data. And I was like, what? But what it meant was I could do probably 10 times the amount of work uh, because I'm not running the data all the time. She's doing what she loves to do. I'm moving to the next level of taking the discoveries and helping organizations apply them and, and designing research studies and those kinds of things. So just that that little thing, and I've, I've done, I've give you a lot of examples of how that's happened over the years, but don't try to do everything yourself and, and know what your colleagues are good at. Love that. Really great advice. Um, I suppose it's the, the power of delegation a little bit, isn't it? And, uh, and you know, as you said, using people's strengths uh, so that you can focus on other things. Great advice. And Jim, we finish every interview with this question. Can you recall the best advice? And you've had some great mentors. I'm going to be interested in this answer. The best advice you've ever received that's made you better at work. I have to go back to uh, some of the things Don Clifton taught me early on. And the work we did, we talked about is highly scientific and there's a lot of statistics and formulas and meta-analyses and all those kinds of things that, that we do that us researchers love to do. But he gave me the advice to keep it simple, to make it simple so that people can apply it. And so I, if I get feedback from someone that they applied something that we use, that's the best possible feedback I can get because that means I'm trying to, I've, I'm, I've been effective at translating and that I, I take that on as a um, a fun challenge, actually, to know the complexity of the research, but then to think about with other people how we make that both accurate and useful in the end. So that keep it simple um, has been not too simple. Um, like Albert Einstein, I think, said, uh, should be, or at least he was paraphrased as saying this, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not too, not too simple, right? It's got to have the right truth element to it and accuracy, but uh, it's got to be applicable. What great advice. I, I think that's great, Jim. And I mean, everything that you produce, I find is very easy to digest. It's it's great. And, you know, you've been our, you're one of our perfect guests to have on the show because your information is backed by research and science, but you translate it in a very simple, easy to understand way. And you're a really lovely person to talk to on the show. I've really enjoyed this and I really appreciate you coming on and, and helping our listeners be better at work. Well, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Cahill, and it's been great to meet you. So good to meet you. So, so good to meet you. And I hope you'll come back again because I uh, just loved this chat. And if anyone wants more information on the amazing Jim, go to gallop.com. And also you can check out his latest book, Culture Shock, which you have got to check out. It's really, and that's only been out since May, was it, Jim? Yeah, it's yeah. very new. End, end of May, actually. Yeah, so it's it's a really great book. So do check that out. And thank you again so much, Jim, for coming on Better at Work. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jim. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Hello there, Annette. So lovely to see you. Welcome to our final Let's Take This Offline for season two. We have learned so much, Kahal. So, Annette, Jim, what did you think of Jim, someone I've had wanted to have on for quite a long time, Jim Harter? What did you think of him? Jim is so super smart. There's so much in pretty much every sentence that Jim covered for us. I'm really fascinated by this whole space of engagement and how it can go across everything we do at work in all situations. Look, the engagement piece is so important right now with 
hybrid work and people feeling they aren't as engaged as they were before. His book is just a great resource. It's the manager. I even love the title. It's the manager. How many times have you heard that managers? It's the manager's the problem. Let's get right into it, Annette. What was your first takeaway? My first takeaway, Kahal, is, is a takeaway for each of us, for ourselves. And that's around feedback, ensuring that feedback is meaningful, both for ourselves and for the feedback we share, we share with others. So starting with the Clifton Strengths assessment you can find online, really going deep on your own strengths and getting feedback on those strengths regularly on how you're working and improving and making the most of your strengths. And it links to something you and I super interested in, Kahal, the whole school of positive psychology and what makes people happier, what makes people happier. And it's often a big driver there is understanding your strengths and amplifying your strengths rather than that focus in on those Yes, being aware of weaknesses, but the focus on strengths, how to amplify those and how they can cover us for areas where we're not so strong. And that's come through in many of our episodes and the learning we've done throughout both seasons with Tasha Urich's guidance around getting a loving critic, uh, Jim Folkman's episode we had on trust and leadership and his, his research on the leaders who had the feedback on their fatal flaws and did nothing about it and how that can unravel careers. So that importance of meaningful feedback. A little tip in there I liked was around asking people how they like to be recognized and similarly reflecting on how you like to be recognized and, and sharing and demonstrating that. So that was my, my first takeaway, Kahal. Love that. What was your second one? A takeaway for relationships, a takeaway for us and how we work together. And there was so much richness in Jim's research and understanding of hybrid work and remote work. The two elements to think about in designing, improving, refining remote working and focusing on those remote ready jobs, knowing that some jobs can't be remote. And the first side of that was around the team and that insight that only 13% of organizations or leaders are enabling the design of return to the office and hybrid work to let it work it through with the team or let the team work it through. So rather than it being set by the organization, set by a boss or letting each individual work it out themselves, when the team works it through, you get that balance. And if you can keep that in the context of the endowment that through COVID, through remote working, people have come to understand that they love the freedom and autonomy of remote work. And so when with the change of return to office, a way that you can solve there is work it through the team to design what works for everyone collectively. The flip side of that coin is having the the understand the data and the facts of why in-person time matters. And two reasons there that Jim's research points us to is around the social time. The social time is important. Again, it doesn't matter how much social time, but making it work so people can, when they are in the office, 
it's meaningful, they can get the connection and understand the benefits to their own mood and what happens in person. And, and we know from the science that rates of depression are higher in fully remote work without that connection around the work and productivity drops as well. So I love that nudge there around the social reasons. The second reason I thought is more around um, the why for the organizations that we work for and that we want to succeed. And that's around we're becoming more separated. Uh, Jim's insight there, and this is causing disconnection between workers, between team members, between teams and their connection to the organization. That translates to customers and it's causing a disconnect there from Jim's research and that's impacting customer satisfaction and customer experience. So having those insights within your organization about what's happening in organizations around that insight and that being the other side that there's a social need but there there is a business need, having the facts to drive that insight around where is the win-win, where is the sweet spot and getting to that two to three days that Jim's research is showing works for maintaining freedom and autonomy. Also getting the social connection we need to come together to solve problems, to work things through. We've heard a lot about bringing the team in on the journey of hybrid from Lauren and Caitlin from PwC. They talked about a flexibility charter and working on that with the team. Your piece on the social, I think, is very important as well, you know, and and Jim's research on that. We are social animals and people do like to go in and connect with people in the teams. You do hear a lot of companies talking about, oh, hybrid's a problem and blah, 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 blah. I loved He didn't say this in the episode, but I had it in my notes when I was doing my research on him. He said, cultures can become victims of circumstances. I thought that was very interesting. I think working cultures can become victims of circumstances. And of course, the circumstances have changed, right, with hybrid work. As you mentioned there as well, the fact that you have this... uh, concept in behavioral economics called endowment effect. Once people have a benefit or something they believe is a net positive, they strongly resist losing it. And what was your third takeaway? The Q12, the Gallup survey, using that as a method. Use many models links for, for many functions linked to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So this hierarchy of engagement needs so, so powerful. The key insight here for me around when you go into the 12 is understanding that the order is deliberate, the order is important, and starting with basic needs, individual needs, teamwork, and then and, and then into growth. So not cherry picking, not just picking a best friend at work initiative for the month, being very deliberate, understanding where you are with those needs and building up the layers. That's where the real power is in the Q12. So a great tool for each of us individually and what we can bring to engagement for our teams, for stakeholder groups, for projects. They're so good. I loved the Q12 as well. So great final takeaway there from you. And for anyone that is listening, you can actually get all these for free. All you have to do is Google Gallup's Q12 questions and they're all there and you can see it for free. And I think the key thing here that I took from that in it, and that, that's my final bit on it as well, is that Jim talked a lot about that every manager needs to have a meaningful conversation every week with their team. 
members, particularly with their direct report. So if you're a leader, I think one of the big takeaways I took from it was have a meaningful conversation every week with your team members. And that's where the whole Q12 comes in as well. And, you know, these 12 basic questions that cover elements of employee engagement, which if you do, can help a lot. And so, Annette, I just thought he was fantastic, Jim. Like this, he kept using the phrase low-hanging fruit. There was nothing in here that was complicated, but it was all backed by data. So I love that we've ended our season too with one of our aims with the show overall, which is that it's science-backed, research-backed, evidence-based information to help you have a better day at work. Jim was that wrapped up in a bow. Everything he gave, he's Gallup. He's from Gallup. Like, if you haven't heard of Gallup, guys, look up Gallup, the world's leading kind of employee engagement research firm. I think he just gave us so, so much. He was such a nice man to talk to as well, Annette. Just so down to earth, really easy conversation and just so much in there. You know, in the episode, we covered a little bit about the Global Wellbeing Index and World Poll they did. I loved that actually the five elements of that of well-being, the number one one was career. And that links to our tagline, when work is better, life is better. He actually said, well, actually, from a well-being perspective, career in your job or whatever you do makes up so much of your life. And it actually has a huge impact on your well-being, along with financial well-being, of course, physical well-being, community well-being and social. There's that social one again, that people you're around, they give you energy. I'm so glad we ended our season with Jim in it. I absolutely agree. Focusing on here's the research, here's the science, and this is what you can do with it tomorrow, Kahal. And and how Jim's work and book, the manager. It's the manager. Goes across the th- those three themes of how we show up to work. Yes. How we work with other people when we get there and then the methods that we use at work. Absolutely. Love it, Annette. Love it. And thank you, Annette, so much for all of your insights all season long. You have given us so many great takeaways. And, you know, for anyone listening, a lot of work goes into producing a show show like this, Um, you know, from Annette and for myself and the team to just bring it together. But Annette, in this moment, I want to say thank you to you for all of those fantastic insights after each ep- after each interview. Oh, thank you so much, Carl. I, you know, I love doing it. I love doing I it. I'm, I'm learning so much and we're helping a lot of people. Exactly. And that's really what we want to continue to do. So that's it. Thank you so much, Annette. And now we would normally be going to our listeners' questions, but now it's time for a little announcement. That is the end of season two, uh, but that's not the end. You're going to still hear more from us over the summer and winter. So summer here in the UK and winter in Australia. We've got about a three to four month break between the seasons. And we decided that this time between the breaks, we would release some content. And actually, Annette and I in the background have been working on lots of our own content. We've been taking our own experience over the last 20, 25 years, along with what we've heard through the episodes and through our amazing guests uh, that we've interviewed, framing our content to help you have even more days at work. So we have been, and Annette kind of gave you a little preview there on the way that we're doing it. We're breaking our content 
into what we believe are the things that the steps, if you like, to have a better day at work. And we say it's broken into better me. So you got to focus on yourself first. Then it's better we. How do we work with other people? How do we build trust? How do we work with difficult people? We makes up a big part of having a better day at work. And then the ways, what are the ways to get through a difficult meeting, the ways to navigate uh, the challenges of working life. So that's it. Better me, we ways. It's coming very, very soon. We've been working very hard on this in the background. Over the next few months, we will release some of that content. So there'll be shorter form episodes. We'll start with Better Me, where you'll hear a lot from Annette and I on why we believe starting with you is so important to having a better day at work. You'll hear clips from some of our episodes over the last two seasons. You'll hear some new content as well. So it's certainly not a recap. It's new content, but framed by some of the learnings that we have had ourselves and through some of our amazing guests. Annette, I know you're excited for Me We Ways. What I love about it is it helps with ordering everything we've learned and also those streams of how we'll continue to build out because we know we've, we have more to learn, more to research, more to understand under those three categories of how I show up to work, the work I need to do on myself to be my best self, align with my values when I come to work join a meeting. That second area of everything I need to know and be aware of and learn and focus on and address when I'm working with other people. So the, the we and then the and and then everything else we're learning around the methods, the way. So, and I think we can build on it. We're very excited for this. There'll be about 30 minute episodes. There'll be three of them over the next few months. And we will start with me. And you'll hear more in those episodes about why we have broken our thinking into me, we ways, lots more new insights that we have learned and that we have, I suppose, used ourselves in our jobs over the years in it, because we've got lots of that stuff as well that we haven't used so far in our two uh, series that we've put out. Do subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss these uh, shorter form episodes coming out over the next few months. We want to say also do sign up to our newsletter. We'll continue to produce the newsletter over the next few months and there'll be lots of new content coming out there. Details on our Better Me, We Ways that will be coming out as well. So stay definitely sign up to the newsletter so you can stay well ahead of it all. Do connect with us on LinkedIn or on any other social platform you want. We're on Instagram as well. We'd love to stay connected while we're on our break from producing the regular content every two weeks. So uh, do stay connected. We love hearing from you. So that's it, Anish. Thank you very much to you and thank you to our listeners, because without you guys providing the feedback, the insights, the things that you think you'd like us to cover, etc., that all helps our community and helps you as a community and helps us create content that is useful for the working community. And we would love you to continue to do that as we get ready for season three. That's our why, Kahal. That's our why. That's our why, thank for you. sure. Thanks so much to our listeners from me as well. And thank you for having me. So good to have you, Annette. It's lovely to do something with your friend. Thank you, everyone. We hope you will join us over the next few months and join us for season three after that. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Annette. Thanks, everyone. 
Bye, bye, everyone. bye everyone. See you soon. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Carl Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.